The food service and hospitality industries are evolving, often in ways you've never heard of, until now. Our host and technovator, Rob Grimes, is the leading voice of global food service and hospitality technology. Powered by the International Food and Beverage Technology Association, IFBTA, the Accelerate podcast is where technology and ideas are shared, served with a side of new innovation. Welcome to the Accelerate podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Accelerate podcast powered by the IFBTA. I'm Rob Grimes, your host, and this week I'm very excited to have a conversation with Toby Egan. And Toby is the Associate Professor and Senior Executive Fellow and Chair of the Faculty at the Robert H. School of Business and the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. I think that's a, a mouthful, Toby. Uh, that means you must have a lot of credentials. Yes. Sounds like it, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. I can only imagine what your business card you know, looks like, although I think you've given me one. But before we get started with uh, today's uh, episode, I want to share with you the menu for today, and then really talk about uh, a, a recap from last week. So today we're going to be uh, talking about, you know what, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to be talking about, because I think this one's going to flow. Uh, so I will give you an introduction in a minute as to how we got to this podcast today. But first, a couple of points from our last episode. Uh, we were talking about the international considerations and opportunities. I guess I was in an international frame of mind since I have some trips coming up uh, internationally. And really the points that we talked about on the podcast had to do with uh, how to deal with the selection of systems, uh, looking at uh, software, hardware, and services, uh, taking into account uh, local customization, uh, both for culture uh, not just your culture, but also the culture of the people that have to use it, but also a very diverse and international workforce. And then, of course, you have all the local governmental reg regulations and things such as that. And so if you want to learn more about the international considerations, if you're going international or you're thinking about it, uh, you'll want to listen to uh, last week's podcast. But that brings us to today. So let me tell you how we got here. So every morning... I go to Starbucks, uh, and uh, no slight on our friends at Dunkin' or Tim Hortons, but there's a Starbucks that I can see out my window, and it's right across the street from where I'm at. So I go there 4.35 in the morning. And many of those days, there's Toby. Now, I've known Toby for a couple of years, but quite frankly, I didn't exactly know what he did. Uh, Toby, uh, I did know he was in the business school. He was at University of Maryland. What I didn't know was sort of the areas of interest and specialty. So about three weeks ago, uh, I'm on my way to Starbucks at 4.30 in the morning, and I'm listening to the radio, and they're talking about fake, you know, the deep fake news and the idea of uh, uh, newscasters who get on that aren't really real, but they look real, and they're telling you the news, and you basically load up a script, and, and, you, can do it, and you can do that. And so I walk in, and there's Toby, and I start talking to him, and, you know, as a professor, and I, and I brought up this subject. Well, that turned into about an hour-long conversation, and then it turned into another one a few days later um, in all kinds of subjects. And I'm always talking about how conversations can occur anywhere, and there are very interesting people that you run across, and sometimes they're sitting right across from you or next to you at a place like Starbucks or any coffee shop, and you see them for years, and you never really get into what they do. But it was a great conversation, and that's the conversation we're going to have 
uh, to share today. So Toby, first of all, did I miss anything in the introduction? Nope, that was a great introduction. Thank you, Rob. And uh, I'm looking forward to having the conversation. Okay, so why don't we just get you know right to it? So we were uh, talking, obviously <laughs> what everybody talks about is uh, chat uh, GPT. Yes. And But you're teaching. And so why don't you share your perspective on where you see technologies, maybe not just that one, but where you see those technologies playing a role in your environment? Well, if you know ChatGPT uh, and its capabilities, uh, which I'm just beginning to learn, although I can confess I use it um, almost daily now, if nothing else, to kind of check against some other things I'm planning. Let me just share a story with you about its impact, and then we can talk a little bit more about its detail. So I have two colleagues that I interacted with very early on in discovering and using ChatGPT. So if you've used ChatGPT before, what you'll find is it's an amazing resource that you can use in a variety of ways. One way you can use it is just as a search resource. It'll give you much more elaborate, uh, el much more elaborate findings um, in answering any question basically you have and then ChatGPT will also take on a character. So if you tell it you are an expert uh, in food science, interested in discovering a new product, it will set its mind, it'll set its framing for the response uh, in that way. And then it will give you, usually within 10 seconds or less, a very elaborate one pager that provides you with an answer to your question. So if you take a moment and imagine, if you're a professor interested in supporting student learning, but also interested in doing so through especially written work, so uh, outside of maybe uh, your finance or accounting classes in the business side, uh, maybe outside of your uh, stat classes in, in the public policy side that I work in, you often rely on text and analysis, text-based analysis in the form of essays, in the form of papers, those types of things. So this realization has kind of moved among the faculty, especially probably since some early um, media attention in December and January and since then. Is the faculty and, welcoming it or are they hesitant? Yeah. So here's the, here are the two people I interacted with right away around this. So my two doors down from my office is uh, a colleague who regularly provides students with questions in discussions, online discussions or essays. And she literally said, I'm not sure I have a job anymore. Um, and it was a pretty stark statement. Uh, but basically, when you look at somebody who has done largely text-based kind of examinations, discussion questions, and really relied on students to uh, articulate their perspectives through unique correspondence, unique uh, papers, um, this thing writes them for you. And we're at the early generation of it. So we've got another generation coming up here that'll be even more adroit, more fast, and more comprehensive. So one of the things that faculty really struggle with is how do you get on the other side of this? Because essentially, um, if you do a exam where students have access to a computer, they essentially can put in the question to the exam and produce uh, a fairly unique response. So panic, I would say, would be the first response from, from several, several of my colleagues. The same day I went down the hall because I decided I'm the, I chair the faculty, uh, so I decided to go down and uh, ask our tech professor specialist, who is quite uh, aware of the use of AI and uh, all its tools, and asked him, so what do you think? I just got a response from 
our colleague that uh, she thinks her job's done. And uh, he, he laughed, but he certainly understood what she meant. Um, and he talked about getting on the other side in two ways. One is uh, an- analyzing students' writing using uh, code, which I think is only a short-term solution, but could potentially be In one. other words, grading the doing the opposite, the challenging it itself by yeah. using the technology to actually review what's being handed to you. Right. And also developing an understanding of the student's writing style through AI to then assess whether they actually used it. So plagiarism is one concern. The other one's work. So do they actually do that kind of work? And so he has started to experiment with incorporating chat GPT inside of his course. So how is it that you um, build something that still requires a level of customization by the student that at this point can't be seen as a possibility for that work? So you have in in two cases, one uh, person who I think is not representing uh, a small number of people who are on the faculty role, and I would certainly say high school and middle school. And we're seeing um, universities and high schools developing anti-chat GPT policies, telling students they cannot use it. And on the other side, someone who's you know, more accepting of the technology and certainly understands the already existing integration of the technology into the learning environment. Yeah, but so, you know what? This is, sounds like uh, when I was in school, so I guess I'm about to date myself on this, but the Texas Instrument hand, you know, calculator exactly. computer, right? Yep. And, you know, could you take it and use it in a test or not? And I think at the end of the day, you know, all students are, well, they bring PCs in the, in the class now. So right. they've gone beyond that, right? But I think at the end of the day, the question was, have we taught them the basics of how to write in this case or how to do uh, math? And then once they have the basics, why not use a tool? Yeah. And so the question is, uh, have they learned the basics? Because essentially, you know, that is going to be uh, the strategy. So if you look at something, uh, so Bloom's tech ne- taxonomy is a common uh, model. And it very simply, it goes from uh, the kinds of tests you'd think of as memorization tests, multiple choice, those types of things, very easily answered by ChatGPT, um, all the way up to synthesis, which is being able to write or, or verbally articulate um, your reaction that demonstrates the combination of a situation, let's say, a case study, um, some course content, uh, and also uh, your own uh, opinions or perspectives. So the challenge is really this technology can at this point fake that or, or actually so, it's, not, so it's wait, not fake. So, it's actually, they can produce it. Right. But the hold for one second on this, yeah. um, you know, we already know that there are people, even in my industry, in the hospitality industry that are using, uh, they've been using it for years, you know, different computer programs to read uh, job application letters yep. and, and, uh, and uh, do that kind of analysis of somebody who's writing and picking out key words and things. So isn't this, you know, this is sort of the next step. They may be using it here, but the other side of the business was using it uh, all the time. Now, I, I know we're talking about teaching here and maybe teaching isn't a business in here, but I think it is because you're producing a product in the students that industry is going to buy. So we've already been doing this for years and analyzing and, and doing and figuring out who the person is. It's a level different, I think. Um, so I'd agree with you. Well, the, the part you're talking about is technology adaptation. And so in my two examples, you have somebody who's Basically, their first reaction is to uh, to basically not be an adapter. So their their thought is that they don't see how they can be an adapter, and the way that they've designed their learning experiences has been entirely potentially usurped. Um, because if you think about strategies, just that are about uh, students demonstrating knowledge, that's the issue. So um, your examples are good ones, but students, you know, the the um, Texas Instrument 
uh, calculator doesn't give you the answer. You can put formulas in it. You certainly can can move forward in a way that you couldn't otherwise, but you still have to know what formulas to use. There are still students who need to work through that process. It's not instant. ChatGPT yeah, but it, Chat well, wait a minute. They have to know which button to hit because uh, I am constantly screwing up the formula. I shouldn't admit this to you, but constantly <laughs> screwing up formulas when it comes to figuring out percentages. Yeah, yeah. Do I divide by this one or that one? But if I just have it on, on a spreadsheet or a calculator, it does it for me and figures it out. Yeah. So to me, you know, we're talking about a couple different things. One is, is this beneficial? The answer, I think, is in many ways, yes. The, the other part is, what is internalized learning? So when we look at this example I gave from memorization to synthesis, essentially, the question would be, if you, if you were received an essay and you just told chat GPT to write the response, did you have to have any initial knowledge about the topic? And what we know from a couple mm. of Harvard Business School uh, examples is that they just submitted a, a chat GPT response. It was independent, and it actually is produced independently of any demonstrated knowledge by a student. So my sense would be that an eighth grader with no particular intelligence different from his or her peers would be able to get a B or, or higher grade at Harvard Business School simply by inserting the question into ChatGPT. So that's the gap. And as my my second example, my other colleague is- But you still need to know which question to ask as you go down the path. That might help you with your first paper. But if you don't read what there is and you don't understand what you received in this, you don't know what the next question is to ask. Uh, I, I'm using the example of you receive four essay questions and that's your exam. In ChatGPT, you simply need to cut and paste the question four. and you receive an answer. So okay. So that's the, that's the dilemma. I think that what we need to do, and I don't think we're going to be able to do it in weeks, but I think in months we'll be able to think through what are the ways to look at what we're interested in, which is, you know, we talk a lot about the translation of, of college and high school education to jobs. So what we're looking for is what is the transferability? And, and so if the work environment is going to have chat GPT in it, then, yeah, we have a different uh, set of considerations. Yeah, think, the, work in, the work environment is setting the standard for which, you know, if, right. if people are not hiring your students – you know, you are not, you know, preparing them for the world. Now, that also means, by the way, that the faculty themselves have to be, right. you know, up on this. Yeah. So if you look at your industry, the the task analysis becomes the issue. So, you know, in training task analysis, what we try to do is break down what are the competencies that lead to the need for transferability to an outstanding or very high performing individual. So when you look at that uh, on the chef side, You've got a long list of companies and cap capabilities that differentiate chefs at different levels. Um, you still get you know, farther out, probably you could argue that the Michelin star uh, restaurant um, or the mat, you know, high producing restaurant has something that isn't necessarily um, something you can develop, uh, at least in a formal education program. But you can get a long way there just in terms of identifying what are the talents and skills you need and developing a training approach that reflects the kind of frontline task analysis that gives you confidence that if someone goes through a training program or goes through my academic program, that they are prepared to perform well. Of course, there's going to be variance based on the individual, but you're you're able to check those boxes along the way and and with confidence be able to say this graduate has these capabilities. So I think that's where the the AI components are going to really cause some kerfuffle for a while while we will have to step back and ask the question, so what are the new capabilities that include this kind of technology? And if it is important to industry to have humans 
that are differentiating themselves in order to have high performance. Because, you know, it's an organization looking at learning and performance. How well are we learning and, and adapting? And how well are we performing? And ultimately, in terms of profitability, what's our differential in terms of our, our performance? Yeah, but I think, I, think you, I think you bring up some good points here. The challenge that we seem to have is that as these new technologies come out, a lot of people look at the negative side, but, but they're probably inevitable. Yep. That they're, it's, you know, the next generation. So if you apply it, and, and I'm glad you go to Michelin star restaurants, you know, if you, if you apply it to the hospitality industry in general, it's a service industry, it creates experiences. Uh, and those experiences are, you know, created in, in the food, the service, the room, a, a number of different ways. Well, if you think about it, one of the challenges we have is a training issue in the industry. And how do you teach somebody your culture? And then how do you, you know, answer questions and give customers the right, uh, by the way, I'm talking all the way down to a drive through in a fast food restaurant, because right. how many times do people get it wrong? What's in the bag or the person doesn't know how to, there's industry term to upsell. Well, something like a chat uh, GPT on a system could actually tell them what to ask mm-hmm. and what right. the next thing and analyze it. it maybe eventually reducing the person themselves and put them more to the service aspect of it, but taking the order, I mean, all kinds of voice on taking orders. So that's right. Deposit, well, right? and in your example, also it's service energy. So, you know, one of the things that when you look at frontline providers is their capability to deliver the full package. So it's, you know, adroit thinking, sales capability, but also a kind of service energy that translate, uh, translates as authentic, and engage with the with the customer, which I'm actually finding on a day to day basis as a f- working with frontline and uh, employees in restaurants and other service areas to be um, not let's say it's probably not been observed to be on the upswing for me over the last couple of years as I talk to lots of uh, managers who are struggling just to find and populate their workforce. But uh, in, in terms of the issue of let's let's go back to your um, your calculator example. So let's say you had an instructor who uh, was a little bit behind and across the hallway, the same course was being taught by a professor who or, or a teacher in your case, probably in high school or, or, or college, who had adapted his or her class to facilitate the use of your TI, Texas Instruments calculator. It's, it's going to take some work for that professor who doesn't know how to use a TI, or even if they do, and they've been using them for a long time, to, to reformulate their class. To unless, they're, unless they're thrown into it overnight. So when Which COVID hit happening. the schools, cl- yep. get closed, and you have to do virtual, all of a sudden, exactly. you better know how to teach virtually. You know, and then, of course, track uh, you know, uh, student engagement and, yep. and the other things that are there as well. So you know, it happens. We see it all the time. Absolutely. And so what, what I think uh, both of my colleagues, actually, the one who's forward-looking and feeling um, maybe even a little bit excited about the technology advancements, and the other who is quite doomsday, doesn't see how the paradigm's going to shift for her. Um, it, it's about putting our heads together and figuring out what this means and how it translates. I would say one of the things that probably will do well, will do well with is you can use AI to probably help you figure out how to provide learning and development in that way. But I do think also the question of how might uh, facilitation of learning change is part of this equation as well. So if we get on the other side and now put in the hands um, AI for the competent learning facilitator, whether it's a professor, you know, a frontline or um, executive uh, learning and development professional in, in, a, in the food industry, certainly executive coaching all the way to uh, frontline 
uh, ongoing training, whether it's training for technology or training for customer service uh, or training for food preparation. You know, all those all those aspects that are affected by this need to be uh, designed and redesigned. And I'm sure you're really tuned into the robotic aspect of this, which would be the, some of those frontline um, food service providers. But in the in the academic side, you know, it does do something positive because I do think uh, right before we had COVID arrive, I had lots of colleagues who said they just couldn't possibly teach online. And, you know, three to five weeks after COVID hit and we changed our academic delivery, there they were figuring it out. Uh, but we always talk about the unintended uh, opportunities or, or consequences, you know, of things like COVID. And even in the university environment, it, it enabled them to reach out to more students. Now, you are fortunate that University of Maryland is in a metropolitan area and it's easy for students to get there. But if if you're at my alma mater, Penn State, in the middle of Pennsylvania, you know, this extends, uh, you know, Pennsylvania's reach and Penn State's reach, you know, on it to be able to do the virtual. And I think they're seeing that you can actually do it or have a hybrid approach. So it gave an opportunity. Absolutely. And I do think then uh, the other part that I think is so important for any learning institution is that what I hope this experience can do is to ramp up more exchange between industry and education. It's necessary. We're going to have to see. Well, that always and is. Look the, ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that, that synergy, is. whether it's with alumni, whether it's with our own students who are, in my case, with my MBA program, out working every day. Uh, you know, looking at so how does how do we again just the synthesis adjust that synthesizing so we're actually seeing real world examples connecting with the theory and research that we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think what uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, shift uh, in a second. Okay. Uh, or in a moment, uh, we'll shift on to some other subjects that you've actually just brought up in there. But I'd, I'd just like to remind our, our listeners that if you have cool ideas out there or you sit next to a cool person like Toby and you have a cool conversation uh, and you're always exploring and seeking, you know, new technology and innovation, you know, in our industries or not, because this was a conversation that wasn't in our industries and, and it certainly can be applied. Uh, and we're glad that Toby eats so he can apply it much better. But if it makes you say, wow, or it sounds really interesting, please please share it and send a note to me at coolideas at robertgrimes.com because it's great to be able to explore, learn, and share this together and start conversations on your own and start conversations that may end up here. And speaking of Accelerate, uh, to subscribe or if you have any thoughts or comments or suggestions for our show, please send us a note at accelerate at foodabletv.com. So let's go ahead and shift a little bit uh, on this, but I am going to make one little comment uh, before we do that. It's funny because this morning in my inbox, um, I got a, uh, an email, which I started to listen to, uh, but I'm not, certainly not going to plagiarize them. But the subject was, will, will, uh, how chat GPT and AI will shake hotel marketing to the core? And they wanted to know whether it's going to get rid of hotel marketing because of responses, personalized responses, and being able to answer people's questions. But then I went into it and I looked a little bit further. And you already mentioned the uh, Michigan, uh, Michigan, the uh, Michelin restaurants, and uh, and uh, y- you know that's that's a culinary art. You know, there's a chef, and we were talking about that. Well, you know, it's funny because this morning I was just just looking at something, and up comes Dolly too. D-A-L-L-E, I think it is, uh, Dolly 2. And what is that? That is the generation of chat GPT, but for creating art. Right. And and so I'm looking at this and I'm going, wow, you know, my, my menu design, you know, my, my you know, menu boards, you know, my digital signage, my advertising, my website. And, and I also, what I got out of this is that uh, 
Also, people are using this technology to find bugs in software and mm -hmm. rewrite code. Mm -hmm. And so in reality, there is a creation aspect that is helpful and quicker you know, than what we do. So I'm just pointing out that there are a number of business areas and where is this going to go, right? Yeah, and you're right to think across every aspect of the food industry. And for me, uh, because of my background, I also have worked at different scales of uh, food and agriculture as well in terms of clients. So I can see all the different places there's application. I would say, just based on my consumption of social media, that uh, marketing is certainly one that's out ahead in terms of providing examples, uh, just based on my uh, anecdotal experience of looking through different uh engagements and social media conversations uh, about the applications. So you're good. You're right to point that out. And I think it will make a big difference for people who are in the marketing area. And also just for any business who's thinking about different or new marketing strategies, you're literally going to be able to build uh, an email. You already have repeatable emails, but essentially you'll be able to build a, a program Customize. that customizes it all. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, you know, a lot of people in our industry, every industry are talking about voice, uh, you know, and not just voice recognition, but voice, uh, you know, back to the consumer. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that once you have, well, this is the example that started our, our discussion, which was the, the deep fake news, um, that once you have the text, or you can go ahead and synthesize what somebody is saying because there's very good applications today that go text to speech or speech to text. You know, once you have that, you really don't need to be typing this. And then the system, if it has a voice, can actually respond and give proper responses and learn from the responses. And so that is probably the opportunity going forward where there's the direct interaction without having to put the text in. Absolutely. So I wanted to put you on the spot. Uh, because, and I, I'm not sure I actually understand what I'm about to ask you, but you know, you have two hats at Maryland. You have one that has to do with the business school, but you have one that has to do with public policy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure where this actually crosses into it, but I suspect uh, when you're talking about the labor force and when you're talking about dealing with customers and customer service, and if you make mistakes, you know, how that's going to be because you always get into, you know, the liability issues and things. But with a public policy hat on, where do you think public policy is going to go towards these types of technologies, both for education as well as in industry and their use? And then also, you know, the data security and information with the, um, with the guest because you are going to be able to start to store and analyze somebody in some ways that in the last few years people didn't want you to do. Yeah. Well, as an educator who thinks about these issues, both from a business and public policy perspective, I would say because I'm in a school and because I have been around education, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a unique educator still, I think, because I'm not an ivory tower educator, meaning that I've spent 10 or 12 years just in industry before I came over to higher education and have been straddling both since. And in, in dealing with public policy and in business, you're you're looking at the kind of pracademic approach. So you're trying to look at the applied practitioner perspective and asking academic questions. Again, pracademic, I'm going to be remembering this. Word. <laughs> Sorry. Or no, 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 no. I get exactly <laughs> what you just said, but yeah. pracademic, I, I got it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So so there are two major concerns that I would, would highlight um, that looks from a policy perspective. The first one, which my students actually aren't able to even get their heads around because, you know, they're, uh, what, 18 to 22, 23 years old. So they were born around 
2000 to 2004 or five. So they don't remember a time that there wasn't an iPhone and that those kinds of related platforms. That's 2007. Uh, and they've been interfacing with screens and all the accoutrement that comes along with that for their entire lives. So they actually don't have a comprehension of the impact of screen, screen media, all, all these aspects on their brain and brain development. So one of the things I think, and I talked to friends who are psychologists that we'll probably see in about 10 years, is we'll have enough data and enough consensus around data to understand the developmental implications for people who've been engaging in this technology. And we'll probably begin to say that we need to look at uh, less use earlier. And if you can, if you want the best example, my daughter consumes probably more TikTok than anything else. TikTok's produced in China, China-owned company. And uh, chi the Chinese have created very rigid standards for the relatively minimal use of uh, social media for children. So the first one is just how do we understand what our interface is doing and what's the impact? I'm using children as an example because they arrive at the university very different people than, the f than in the first 10 or 15 years of my work uh, up close with both undergraduates and graduates. They behave differently. Their reference points are different. And I think that from a policy perspective, then the, the issue here is health, wellness, um, and just getting a deeper understanding of what computer human interface means for humans. The second one is really thinking in terms of uh, the capacity for government to get out ahead. So we talked about teachers getting out ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you they're, they're forced to because of what's in their rooms. But I think that Right now, government is so far behind in understanding what is there in terms of technology that beginning to think about it in terms of policy other than uh, failed attempts at regulation. So the, the two we talked about earlier, one is uh, schools trying to limit GPT use or, or AI use uh, in, in production of class materials. Very difficult to do. You mentioned the art side. We also have the 3D print printing side, which we haven't seen much yet. But you're going to see AI doing 3D printing as well. So in all areas of both written, um, tangible aspects, uh, you're going to see an, an increasing amount of, of production there. So think about that in terms of... I, I just thought about what you said, though, in 3D yeah. printing. So if you have yeah. a very talented chef who is able to perhaps uh, show pictures of uh, or enter in a, a recipe that they want to do, in reality the system can synthesize that and create a new dish. Yes. And then show you what that dish is, is going to be like. Yeah, well, if you're, if you're talking about, uh, this will be an interesting challenge. I think we're going to see some chef uh, uh, machine challenges here sometime in the future as well, because I think uh, most chefs uh, would probably argue that the nuance there is going to be difficult for a machine to reproduce. And I'm sure that's seen as a big challenge for the robotic industry. But the other, other part we need to look at is what is the kind of mass production. So I have a student, a doctoral student, who's very interested in the machine interface, machine customer interface and food service. She's just beginning to think through this. But uh, she's trying to get closer to the, to the notion of what is a good service experience for someone interfacing with a robotic food service provider. And, you know, if you look at it from the standpoint of the most likely places for that, historically have been just a simple you know, interface with uh, some way to pick up a food order or some way to look at uh, maybe a customized machine producing yes, uh, a product. Yeah, so you've discussed, discussed that, I'm sure. Here. Absolutely. Yeah. So from a policy perspective, then getting back to that, you know, the, the, the issues first, can legislators, can government, even can organizations catch up? Then when you get to that level, you have to start looking at what uh, do we have in terms of copyright and proprietary 
rules and laws, because essentially we're going to really see a penetration into that that's going to be very difficult to control. So I'd say one thing is we have to get our heads around. So what is a unique what is unique production and what does this potentially do to that? I think the policies there will have to look at uh, reconsidering the capacity of AI and whether there could even be guard, guardrails put on that limit the reproduction uh, similarly of the same product. Because we're essentially talking, you know, in, in uh, terms of proprietary issues that government cares a lot about. Uh, if you look at the defense industry, we know that our products have been copied very closely by other countries, and that mostly has involved the kind of physical espionage, uh, the, and- the stealing of, of, of information, um, and, and handing it into your to your country. What what this might suggest <laughs> is we have the capability to, you know, scan a, an airplane, scan. Uh, and, and stay, scan deeply different products and, and have computer-generated uh, AI basically reproduce those at a level that hasn't been done before. So I think that's the deep level that we're probably not close enough to yet for both public conversations, because some of this ends up getting into some other questions about the reliability of technology. So, so those are layered issues. I'd say at the municipal level, we could also ask questions. So what does AI mean for your city or your, or your town or your county? Uh, I think probably in those cases, uh, one of the things it can do is really create opportunity. Because I do think what it can do, if we do it well, is really uh, understand both data, uh, let's say about traffic movement, about uh, what's happening in the physical environment, use of energy, but also in terms of gaining feedback. And I think actually... Rob, the, the regulation of this will come in terms of the municipal, state, and, and uh, national. The regulation is going to come when when uh, when it gets to be how much data on individuals are there, and then you're going to have both sides of the yes. coin. Yeah, you know and, that that that's that's really out there. So, and then where I, is where is the individual start and end? Because we already see the capability. If you look at the way espionage works right now, it doesn't go into government records; it's going into corporate records. So, so companies. Um, have vulnerability in terms of your credit card exactly. data and that kind of thing. But I'd say on the upside for for food and food service, it's going to give you a richer level of data in understanding customer preferences, customer patterns. And you know this is push and pull. People are moving towards, and my students love, very individualized service. They love uh, at-home food delivery. They like being able to literally, and they're, they're in these habits uh, all the way down to early high school, and I'm probably understating it. You know, look at whatever delivery uh, service you might think about and seeing basically a broad array, especially in a, in a larger urban area, of options that they just grab. So they have a way of being connoisseurs of restaurants uh, that uh, really are uh, you know, the kind of variety that they can explore is quite, uh, quite broad. So, Sir, Toby, so, yeah, Toby, um, so we're really uh, – you've covered a lot of different things, and, and I, I've already figured you out. You know, what I, what I figured out is you're throwing out a bunch of terms. You're bringing us down the espionage, uh, maybe 007 route here, you know, just because we want to get invited back and we can continue having the conversation. So Yeah, we haven't even talked about MOOCs yet. Well, I was going to say there's plenty, there's plenty of, there's, uh, plenty of opportunities uh, to uh, tee it up uh, at another 4.30 or 5 a.m. meeting at Starbucks. But uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, I am going to be using that word uh, pracademic quite a bit because I think that people do not necessarily think about the practical side uh, of the use of uh, technology, but also the book learning side and training. But, you know, I really appreciate your coming on today and we will continue this discussion. My pleasure. So this podcast is brought to you by the International Food and Beverage Technology Association. 
The IFBTA is the industry's voice within the food and beverage industries, providing thought leadership as your single impartial go-to resource. The IFBTA offers in-person and online communities to connect with your peers, exchange, an all-encompassing global technology directory, and an industry-wide professional education and certification program. Bottom line, the IFBTA is your place to gather, learn, and share. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Accelerate, powered by the IFBTA. I am Rob Grimes, your host, and look forward to our next Accelerated Conversation together. Mm-hmm.